Nebraska News Service. Hello, and welcome to Nebraska's Racial Past and Present Podcast. Here we'll take a look at race in Nebraska and explore how we are still surrounded by racial injustice today. We'll dive into the racial history of indigenous and black populations, the institutions that have disproportionately held these populations back, and the fight against racism today. In this episode, we speak with Margaret Hudel, an assistant professor of history and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, about the history of indigenous peoples in Nebraska. We also speak with Jeanette Jones, who is also an assistant professor of history and ethnic studies at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, about the Omaha race riot in 1919 and how it affects Nebraskans today. In 2020, there are six tribes residing in Nebraska, the Omaha, Winnebago, Ponca, Iowa, Santee, Sioux, Sac, and Fox all have reservations here. However, before colonization, Nebraska was home to many tribes. The place that we call Nebraska today was home to quite a few different people. The Pawnee, the Ponca, the Oto, Missouri, Omaha, Dakota, Lakota, Arapaho, Cheyenne, and Kaw peoples. And these were nations who, you know, had their own sense of boundaries and territory. There was a lot of change and a lot of movement going on before Europeans showed up. A lot of times we tend to think back to one particular moment in time, but actually Native people were always changing, moving, adapting. The first Europeans who claimed the land in Nebraska were the French. The French were more interested in trade and in really kind of economically benefiting from resources like fur and then kind of jumping onto indigenous trade networks and expanding their trade networks across the North American continent, where the balance of power really starts to shift because Native nations remained in control. In Nebraska, the Pawnee, the Lakota, the Omaha, they remained in control. What changed is when the Americans were interested in this territory and what they wanted was land. In 1803, the United States of America completed the Louisiana Purchase from the French, gaining the land that is currently in Nebraska. Instead of cooperating with indigenous nations, the United States goal isn't to share the land, it's to get the land and remove Native Americans because this is a time when removal policy was in place where Native Americans are being pushed out of their homelands and concentrated in territories like what's currently Oklahoma. The United States negotiates a series of treaties with various indigenous nations. At first, these treaties are mostly treaties of peace and friendship, but over time they become what the United States calls land session treaties. So from the United States perspective, indigenous nations were selling their land and agreeing to move. Native nations often saw these treaties a little differently. They understood them as like sharing lands and resources and continuing more cooperative agreements. During this time, the United States passed the Homestead Act of 1862, which allowed any U.S. citizen to claim 160 acres of government land in the West. This drove mass migration to Nebraska. That land had to be taken from Native nations first and Native people had to be 
removed from the land. I mean, this was their hunting grounds, even if it's not where their houses physically were. So the United States government puts pressure on the Ponca. They're forced to march down to what is currently Oklahoma. Today, you can find that path as the standing bear trail. Standing Bear was one of the Ponca leaders. They're being marched by the military. It's at gunpoint. And this is at the same time, right, that the the first classes of students are sitting down at the University of Nebraska. They walk just a few miles outside of what is today Lincoln down to Oklahoma. The conditions are really bad. Something like 50% of people died because of disease and neglect through the longer process of removal, including Standing Bear's son. Standing Bear's son died in Oklahoma, wanted to be buried at his home in Ponca territory. And so Standing Bear and his wife and a couple other families walk back north, planning to bury him. They get arrested. From this arrest, Standing Bear sued the federal government in 1869, stating that Native Americans are persons within the meaning of law. This was the first time that the United States granted civil rights to Native Americans. In March of 1933, with the passage of the New Deal, Native populations began to get some of their land back. This happened to a lot of the nations in Nebraska. The Omaha were able to negotiate a treaty that allowed them to keep their land in Nebraska. So there are also several other nations in Nebraska that I haven't mentioned yet, like the Ho-Chunk or Winnebago, the Santee Dakota, the Iowa or Iowa, um, and then the Sac and Fox. Those nations all have land in Nebraska today, and they were removed here from other places. Receiving some of their land back is only a start in restoring relations with Indigenous peoples. Nebraskans can also honor Native tribes by conducting a land acknowledgement, which is a formal statement that recognizes and respects Indigenous peoples as traditional owners of this land. While Indigenous people were fighting for their land back, African Americans were fighting for their right to live. Jeanette Jones discusses the Omaha race riots that occurred in 1919 following the lynching of Will Brown. Will Brown was accused of sexually assaulting a white woman and what commenced is he was arrested. He was put in jail. A white mob descended on the courthouse, I believe it's in Dodge Street or Dodge, wanting the sheriff to turn him over so that they could dispense their own justice, their vigilante justice. And in the process, they also tried to hang the mayor who was trying to stop them as the white mob from getting him out of the jail. Eventually, they're able to get him out the jail. They hang him, Mr. Brown, from, um, I believe it's a lamppost, shoot bullets into his body. At that time, I believe he had already died. And then they set a pyre and set his corpse on fire. The race riot in Omaha was one of 26 race riots that occurred in the summer of 1919 in what was known as the Red Summer. It's important to know the history that is not just convenient or fits into the narrative that the nation has set up for itself. The nation has um, propagated about itself, but also to look at the underbelly, the deep-rooted inequalities, the deep-rooted violence, and other types of things that's happened in the nation. 
particularly in the state of Nebraska, which was a very interesting state. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 allowed the territories to be organized and they could set up their territorial government. And then it wasn't until later that Nebraska became a state. But when when Nebraska was organized under that act, Nebraska was on the so-called later on during the Civil War on the right side of civil war, meaning they were not part of the Confederacy. They had voted not to have slavery in the territory, although there is evidence that people had indeed brought slaves into the territory. And so we we even have a narrative about the history of Nebraska that doesn't really come to grips with a lot of things. First, of course, the dispossession of indigenous people's land, right? The Osage, the Odo, all the different groups that were here And then, of course, the people that were from the east, but that were pushed and removed here long before it had become Kansas and Nebraska as a territory. And so it's really important for us to know all of these moments in the history of the state that really show how difficult it was for people to live and navigate this space. Nebraska attracted African-American immigrants to work in meatpacking plants in Omaha. From 1910 to 1920, the African-American population in Omaha doubled to more than 10,000. More than 70% of these migrants were from the South. And what we see is that Black people are coming here for a better life. They believe that they can get better wages, that in the North they won't have to experience the Jim Crow and the discrimination and the inability to vote, right, that was enshrined in the law in the South. And so you start to get that migration. It's mostly in the 1870s. And, you know, by by the turn of the century, you have established black communities in Nebraska, mostly the largest being in Omaha, but you also have people in Lincoln. The lynching of Will Brown affected more than just one black man. It affected the black population in Omaha as a whole. To see that riot, and also it broke out into the neighborhood, but to see that riot not only take the the, the life of a man, who didn't even get his day in court, but also enacted terror on a Black community is important for us to understand that Nebraska wasn't an anomaly. There were one of, like I said, 26 cities or areas in the United States that had riots. And we know some of those riots spilled into neighborhoods where Black neighborhoods were terrorized, people's houses were burned down, but we still having grappled with that. Anti-Black violence was occurring literally north to south, east to west, and Nebraska was not immune to that. We declare our right on this earth to be a man, to be a human being, to be respected as a human being, to be given the rights of a human being in this society, on this earth, in this day, which we intend to bring into existence by any means necessary. Malcolm X gave this speech at the founding of the Organization of Afro-American Unity in 1964. Nebraska has had many civil rights activists fighting for equality. Before the Black Lives Matter movement, there was a fight to desegregate Omaha Public Schools in 1976, a push for representation in city council and state legislative, and to have a curriculum that recognizes diversity taught in schools. There's a lot of things in Nebraska that people have been fighting for. And right now we're still talking about racial justice. We're talking about, you know, criminal justice system that disproportionately has contact with black, brown and indigenous people. We have a lot of things that we need to we need to talk about. 
that are still with us today. We also see it in wealth inequality. Even to this day, how much money does a Black person make compared to their white counterpart or or Indigenous person? Or I'm talking about on average, not individual people. Or Latinos, right? Um, There's clearly what um, one scholar called a racial wealth gap. When we talk about people who have access to healthcare, disproportionately the uninsured or the underinsured are people of color, right? So a lot of these things, they're, they're not just stuff that has no connection to the legacies of the past, right? To settler colonialism and enslavement and racism. So you, we can't even understand our present if we don't understand the roots of it. It is critical for us in Nebraska to understand our history and learn from it. I think you have to know your past to, to, in order to move forward. And I think part of the problem with the United States as a whole is that we don't want to come to grips with our past or we're being told that it wasn't that bad. And and, you know, if you listen to this current administration that is unpatriotic and it's un-American to talk about things that are actually facts that we know that happen in the states, the inability to come to grips with one's past and to understand it and then to to seek restitution and a knack with reconciliation is what the problem is. And people don't, you know, they, they're uncomfortable because that's not what they've been taught about America. Thank you to Margaret Heddle and Jeanette Jones for speaking with us today. And thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Join us in our next podcast on the effects of redlining in Nebraska. For Nebraska's racial past and present, I'm Brenda Maitre-Nalara.